Welcome back to the Illness Chronicles. My name is Allison. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm so excited to have you back with me. It has been two months since I recorded an episode, and it's been a very eventful two months, so I'm super excited to be back together today. As I've stated in the past two episodes of this podcast, I am not a medical professional, nor am I a scientist. If you have questions about your own health issues, please seek medical attention. Not from me, not from a podcast, but from a doctor. And I also acknowledge how fraught that statement is because medical care is not accessible to everyone. And especially for those of us in the chronic illness community, it can sometimes take years to find the right doctor or the doctor who will ultimately end up diagnosing us with the conditions that we end up being diagnosed with. That being said, seek medical attention. I know it's not a great answer. So as I said, the last time I posted an episode was in May, and it's now the very end of July. So it's been a long few months. I'm still alive, so that's really good news. I'm happy to be seeing the end of July. This is wonderful. Yay! I am hoping to produce more podcast episodes more regularly, but life has gotten in the way. I just want to preface this episode by saying that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the humidity or various other exposures that I've had over the past few days, but I'm not having a great brain day today. So I made a commitment to myself that I was going to record today and I am recording, but man, my brain is moving slowly. So please bear with me. Oof, that brain fog though. So just to recap quickly about who I am, my conditions. I am a white Ashkenazi Jew. I was raised middle class. I live with chronic illness and invisible disability. I identify as queer, but I pass as straight. I identify as cisgender. And I'm a teacher, educator, storyteller, theater director, partner, friend, family member, cat, mother, etc. And I live with fibromyalgia and myalgic encephalomyelitis, formerly known uh, publicly as chronic fatigue syndrome, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, and celiac disease. These are my actual diagnoses as of this moment. And I'm in the process of um, working towards a few other diagnoses as well. So here are some updates. This is what's been going on with me. So I had been living with my parents for a few months. You may recall that, I think I mentioned that in the last episode, that I was living with my parents um, and working remotely full-time. I decided to move in with my parents for a while because the place where I was living had some folks working outside of the home, and because of my health issues, I wanted to make sure that I was keeping myself safe. And I also really wanted to be with my parents during this time and cook for them and hang out with them and cherish this time together. And it was really beautiful living with them. It was so sweet and wonderful, and it felt very safe. And I've now moved back in with my boyfriend, although we've moved into a one-bedroom apartment, just us and our cat. Yay! It's been really fun to be back together. It's been so nice. It was really hard being apart, honestly. 
We were seeing each other almost every week, maybe once or twice a week for a distanced masked walk. But wow, is that not the same thing as actually spending time together in an intentional way like two living partners. So I feel really lucky that we get to be together now, although I am dealing with the idea that my partner works outside of the home. My level of risk is higher than it was when I was living with my parents where we literally didn't do anything outside of the home. We did not go to grocery stores. We were only getting delivery or curbside delivery for groceries and takeout and stuff like that. We weren't doing anything really except for going for walks. So that felt very controlled and very safe. My boyfriend is so wonderful. He's really trying to keep things as controlled and as safe as possible for me in this home. And I feel really grateful for that. But you know, there are risks involved with living with somebody who works outside of the home. So I decided that those risks were worth it because I missed him. And for doing this a long time, I want us to be doing it together. I also am currently furloughed from my full-time job. I will be for probably another month or two. It is what it is. But it's been kind of interesting because while I've been furloughed, I've been focusing on some creative endeavors that I've been wanting to try my hand at for a while, but I don't have the spoons to do creative things normally when I'm working. That's been cool. I started my first ever YouTube and my YouTube is called Ali Tells Stories and it's for young people of all ages, but especially maybe six to nine or 10, although younger is definitely welcome. It's an interactive storytelling YouTube where I tell stories that are original stories that I've written and the listener gets to engage as though they are a character in the story with me as the narrator. And it's really, really fun. I just posted the first video. So you can follow me on Instagram at Allie Tells Stories or you can find me on YouTube. Allie Tells Stories on YouTube. I'm trying to get to 1,000 subscribers on YouTube by the end of August. A very lofty goal for someone who started with zero subscribers. But if you work from home or if you know folks who are caretakers for young people and they're working from home or they're looking for ways to creatively engage their young people, please send them in my direction. I think it's a really important niche that needs to be filled right now. So another thing that was exciting during the time that I was not recording this podcast, I was purchasing my own equipment so that I can record for myself. So I'm currently recording this in my living room with my own equipment, which is really cool. My goal is to get one episode out per month of this podcast as I move forward. And I think that's an achievable goal. I don't know. We'll have to see. I really hope so. One last plug for my work. I got an article posted on the Tablet Magazine website. Tablet is a Jewish online publication, and I wrote an article about the Jewish prayer for healing called the Mishaberach, and it's called A Prayer for Pandemic Times. Please check it out. I'm really proud of this article. It was really exciting to write and to be published. Health updates. It's been interesting going from working full-time in an office to working full-time from home to doing my own projects but being unemployed. So when I was working full-time, I had no spoons, as we call them, like no extra spoons. Like I would work, I would come home, and then I would get into bed, 
especially in the winter. I get really sick in the winter. So I would basically either be at work or be resting. And then if I did something that wasn't just work or resting, I would get so sick and have to call out. It was, it was really hard. And I, I, I had actually partially taken this job that I have been in for the past year because the job bef- that I had before that was really, 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 really full-time, like m- way more than full-time. And I got so, so, so sick. It's actually when I got my fibro diagnosis, I was like, oh, this job where I just work full-time is like a big step up. And I think what I'm starting to realize is that even that is a lot on my body. So I had an interesting doctor's appointment a few months ago. Came into her like the day after I'd worked like a 16-hour day for various reasons. And I was really dead. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so dead. Whatever. I see an ortho, um, I see an orthopedic doctor. So no, that's not true. I see an osteopathic doctor. Hello, brain. Um, And... (laughs) She, so she gives me like physical adjustments, which is really cool. And she said something notable to me, which was that she was surprised that I was still able to work full time because many people with fibromyalgia and ME cannot. And that was kind of like an, oh, like a jolty moment where I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm really, I, I'm really pushing myself. This is not normal. Like most people don't feel this way after work. So it was interesting. I went from working full time in an office, having very little spoons to working full-time from home, which the difference was night and day, pretty much. Um, My energy was so increased just because I could take, you know, a rest during the day. I could work from my bed if I needed to. I could eat the meals that I needed to eat, cook for myself during the day. I was just preserving a lot of energy that I'm otherwise sort of using up by being hypervigilant, which is something that comes with ME and fibro is that you're like hypervigilant to protect your body and mind against what it sees as like intruders or like something causing danger or panic or something like that, even where there isn't any actual danger. So my, my brain and my body are constantly on high alert, ready to like snap if I need to protect myself at work. And that's one of the things that makes me get really sick. So at home, I'm able to keep sort of even keel a lot more or do self-care if things get hard for whatever reason. That was really exciting. And I think, you know, that's given me some food for thought for the future. Um, So that's been interesting. And now that I'm currently furloughed, you know, I'm doing my own work. I've been trying to approach this period like as though I have a job, but that job is just my own creative projects. So I've been doing something for a creative project every single day. And I've actually kind of stressed myself out about about it a little bit, but it's been really motivating and cool and exciting to use this time to devote in that way because in the past, I have wanted to devote time to a creative project and then I've convinced myself that I'm just lazy when I'm not able to. And the truth is, and I really want you all to hear this, I'm not lazy. I really thought I was lazy. Like how absurd is that? I'm not lazy. I'm sick. That sounds like so silly to say, but I really conditioned myself to think that about myself, that if I'm not doing something extra, if I'm not directing a play outside of my job as a teacher or a director, if I'm not writing something, if I'm not recording a video, which I wanted to do for a long time, like if I'm not doing those things, then it's because 
I am lazy and I'd just rather like watch Netflix or whatever when I'm not working, but it's not. It's actually, drum roll please, it's actually capitalism. That's why I think I'm lazy when I'm actually sick or tired. Turns out if you only have 10 spoons to begin the day with, and then you use eight of them on work, and then you only have two left for eating and self-care, like showering and stuff like that, you don't have any left to do extra creative projects. So right now, I'm putting the spoons that I would be putting towards work, towards that, and it feels really amazing. But I do feel a little bit concerned when I go back to working full-time, am I going to be able to sustain any of the cool projects that I've been working on, or will those have to fall by the wayside? Or what would a life look like for me where I get to do those things and also make a living? I don't know what that life looks like, but it's all food for thought. So I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I live in the Northeast and it is extremely humid and hot right now. It is so hot and that has been so hard. My fingers are swollen. My body is heavy and it hurts. My brain is like so slow. I've got fevers every day. I'm just feeling so crappy all the time when it's humid and then it rains and the humidity breaks and it's like, okay, thank goodness. Two little updates. I've been trying some preventative care around, not preventative care, what's the word for it? I don't know, some some care around um, a potential mast cell activation syndrome diagnosis. I've been taking histamine 1 and histamine 2 blockers daily, and I have been seeing some change from that, just testing my toe in the water. And, you know, as I learn more about this potential diagnosis, I will share more in upcoming episodes, I'm sure. And the other thing is I've been doing some preventative care towards a potential POTS diagnosis. POTS is post-orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and I'm still learning about this syndrome, but I know that staying super, super hydrated is really important, so I'm taking an electrolyte drink every single day, sometimes twice a day. I'm constantly drinking water, trying to take it slow and easy, especially in the heat. So back in March, I can't remember if I talked about this in a past episode, but back in March, I I was really sick in an acute way for about three weeks, and my doctor was concerned that I might have had COVID. I was tested, and I tested negative. I actually got sick right after I recorded the first episode of this podcast. It was like that night I started feeling sick. Although I tested negative, I have actually been having some weird residual symptoms that make me wonder if I might have actually had it. And I'm just sharing this here because I don't know if I had it. Antibodies, we don't know whether they protect you against reinfection yet. So, you know, take this all with a grain of salt, but I feel like it's important to share any information that we have with each other at this point. The residual symptoms that I've been experiencing are itchy toes, and that's gotten a lot better in the past month and a half or two months. But for two months after I got sick, I had the itchiest toes, like they were red and itchy, and it was super uncomfortable. I know people are calling that COVID toes. I don't know if I had COVID, but I had really itchy toes. And the other thing is I've developed asthma. Well, in the past, I've had exercise-induced asthma, and I now have actual 
asthma, just regular asthma, where, you know, if, if it's hot or humid especially, I experience a heaviness, coughing, a difficulty breathing. And so I'm now on a corticosteroid inhaler and albuterol, and I just got a pulmonary function test done. Super fun stuff. So very, very exciting. Stay tuned for more on that. Finally, tomorrow I am seeing my neurologist and my rheumatologist. This has been literally months in the making. Like these appointments were originally set for February. So, oh, I said that so strangely. Feb February. That's how I say that. <laughs> so I'm going in tomorrow and I am hoping for my rheumatologist that I will get to see somebody who has some ideas about um, making sure that I have the correct diagnosis around fibro because the room that I saw a year and a half ago was very perfunctory. I would like some deeper, better care from a rheumatologist, um, and I also want to talk about treatment and care plans. And from my neurologist, I have some neurological symptoms that I would like to be looked into, and I also had some nerve testing done way, way, way back a long time ago now. I can't even remember when. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm hoping to get some answers around some neuro-related stuff. So that's exciting. Those are all my personal updates. So interesting, I'm sure anyone asked. Um, but now for some world updates. If you have existed in the world, or especially in the United States, like I have, all states began reopening processes from coronavirus. Some sooner than others, almost all states started before it was recommended by medical professionals and scientists. In Massachusetts, which is where I live, we were slow to open. We are in our phase three right now, although there might be some talks about pulling them back as we're seeing a slight uptick in cases. Not as badly as in the South right now, which is really hard hit. That's that's pretty scary. We got through the first hump. I'm not going to say wave anymore because it's like all one big wave with just little peaks and valleys. One big hump. We got over the first hump and now it looks like we could be entering a second little hump. Hopefully it's a little hump. So that's a little bit scary. I just hope that our governor makes good choices and isn't influenced too heavily by his right-wing constituents. In other U.S. updates, there have been Black Lives Matter protests, which began around May 26th. Those started to protest the unlawful murder of George Floyd by M Minneapolis police. And since then, the protests have continued on an almost daily basis all over the states, with the largest protests occurring in June, with around 80,000 people protesting daily in June worldwide. People are protesting in China and in Japan and in Germany and all over the world. It's been interesting to see a shift of awareness around the need for racial justice and equity in the U.S., but I think for a lot of people, for a lot of Black people, it feels like too little too late. You know, Black Lives Matter was actually created in 2013 after the acquittal of teenager Trayvon Martin's murderer, and major movements have arisen ever since then, almost every year because of murders of Black people at the hands of police especially. Every time there is a little upsurge in these protests, everyone's like, oh my gosh, racism is so bad. Systemic racism is so bad. We're going to like fight against it. And then it's like a little wave of popularity and then it dies down and real change never happens. So we are seeing some small changes here and there being made. 
from these big protests in 2020. And that's really exciting. But we're also seeing some what I'd call the corporate appeasal of protesters and activists where businesses are like implementing maybe like a diversity training and they're like, see how much we're doing to support taking down racism systemically. And it's like, no, you're you're not. The education is definitely important, but education is not the same as systemic change. But it's a start change is going to come and it might be slow and steady over the course of the 2020 protests they've expanded to include the names of many black folks murdered by american police officers over the past two years i want to say some of those names now some of those names include george floyd ahmaud arbery brianna taylor tony mcdade tatiana jefferson and many more It's important for me to talk about Black Lives Matter and to talk about the loss of Black life for many reasons. For starters, I believe in equity and justice. I believe in celebrating Black joy and resilience and spotlighting Black voices. I'm a teacher. A lot of my students in the past have been Black and watching them grow in their learning, in their joy, in their personhood has been one of the great pleasures of my life as a teacher. It makes me sick to my stomach that they are not safe, their lives are not appreciated or seen as important as the lives of white teenagers and white folks of all ages. I also benefit greatly from the Black folks in my life and in the world in terms of my learning, the art that I love, the music that I love, what I know to be true as an educator, And I also really want to talk about this on this podcast because systemic racism is a public health issue. Systemic racism leads to food deserts, for starters, which are places where residents don't have easy access to fresh vegetables and fruit without having access to a vehicle. So food deserts and poverty go hand in hand, and many food desert areas have predominantly Black populations. This is not a coincidence, right? This is the result of local and state government funding being directed towards richer and whiter areas and being directed away from poorer and blacker areas. Food deserts lead to chronic health issues such as diabetes and nutrient deficiencies and all sorts of other chronic illnesses. Systemic racism leads to water shortages or contaminated water sources, like in Flint, Michigan, where there is a major lead contamination in the water system six years ago, and local activists continue to fight for full replacement of their water line system. Six years later, countless chronic health issues can arise from lead exposure, not to mention that it can, and has, caused death. Systemic racism leads to Black folks, and especially Black women and queer and trans people, being misbelieved by doctors and given improper medical treatment. Black women's maternal mortality rates are three to four times higher than white women's. Three to four times higher. Black folks with uterine reproductive systems are more likely to be disbelieved regarding endometriosis and other chronic illnesses and chronic pain conditions. There is inherent racial bias, even in the training that doctors receive, which up until recently included a segment about how black people have higher pain tolerances than white folks, which, by the way, is absolutely bullshit. 
And if the majority of doctors are white or non-black POC, then anti-black racism will trickle into the way that they care for black patients. It's just inherent, just like if straight doctors are treating LGBTQ people or cis doctors are treating trans and queer people, there is going to be oppression in the way that they treat those people because of bias, inherent bias. Finally, systemic racism and our American healthcare system work hand in hand. They're like best friends. <laughs> Such a cute friendship. To make quality healthcare inaccessible to poor folks. And since racism and segregation since slavery have made it much harder for black folks to climb the socioeconomic ladder, this inaccessibility directly impacts black communities. This is a huge deal. This is why healthcare, one, should be free, two, should be universal, and three, should not be tied to employment. It's wild that we tie our healthcare to employment. Like, that's like saying you only deserve to have a doctor if you have a full-time job that doesn't pay an hourly rate. Like, why would your needs as someone who might have illness be less important if you work at Walmart than if you work for a corporation in their administrative office? That makes no sense. And healthcare is a huge deal right now during the coronavirus crisis, which, as I've said, is very much still happening as I speak on Tuesday, July 28, 2020. Coronavirus has disproportionately affected communities of color, including Black communities, for some of the same reasons that I've outlined here. So I talk about this a lot, but I hold a lot of privilege as a white, raised middle-class, straight-passing, cisgender person who is currently physically able to work. So I've been putting my money where my mouth is in addition to doing all that I can to raise awareness, to have hard conversations with people. I'm not able to be out in the streets, but I've been engaging as much as I can from home. But you can also put your money where your mouth is. And here are some of the amazing organizations that support Black health initiatives specifically. Advancing Health Equity can be found on their website. They state on their website that they equip healthcare organizations with the tools to provide equitable care to each and every patient, specifically trying to eliminate racism and bias in healthcare. The Black Mamas Matter Alliance also can be found on their website, helps to give resources to help Black mothers thrive before, during, and after pregnancy, which is a really big issue. Therapy for Black Girls helps Black girls find therapists and resources around mental health that would otherwise be inaccessible to them. The Black Women's Health Imperative is a nonprofit that protects and advances health and wellness for Black women and girls. The Black Mental Health Alliance helps to connect Black folks with Black mental health workers, which is so, so, so important. It also educates the community about trauma-informed practices and culturally competent approaches. That's from their website, and that's so important because so many mental health workers and social workers are not trained in anti-racism, and they perpetrate racism onto their Black and BIPOC patients. The Okra Project is a collective that seeks to address the global crisis faced by Black trans people by bringing home-cooked, healthy, and culturally specific meals and resources to Black trans people wherever they can reach them. That's from their website. 
The Black Trans Advocacy Coalition uh, helps to improve the Black trans human experience by overcoming violence and injustice in the world through the power, value, and love of all people. They advocate for health, housing, and employment for Black trans folks. The Center for Black Equity is an organization that connects members of the Black LGBTQ plus community with information and resources to fight for equity and access. So many great organizations. I also want to encourage you to follow Black, Disabled, and Chronically Ill folks on social media platforms. Some of my favorite accounts include Black Disability Collective. They also have a really great list of places to donate to to support Black people with disabilities. At Leah Javon, L-E-A-H-J-A-V-O-N. Um, I really, really like her Instagram. She is a chronically ill babe who posts about it all the time. And yeah, I've learned a lot from, from Leah. At Talia Hibbert, T-A-L-I-A-H-I-B-B-E-R-T. Talia wrote a book that I've been loving, which is Get a Life, Chloe Brown. It's a romance novel about a Black chronically ill woman. I mean, you literally can't get any better than that. It's like all the gushy romance novel stuff, like sexy romance novel stuff that you want with the chronically ill narrative. Like, it's so amazing. Please check her out. She has um, actually a a bunch of books. At It's Walela, I-T-S-W-A-L-E-L-A. At Olas underscore truth, O-L-A-S underscore T-R-U-T-H. And finally, at crutches underscore and underscore spice, C-R-U-T-C-H-E-S underscore A-N-D underscore S-P-I-C-E. Her, some of her tweets recently have been going viral. She's got a lot of great things to say, and I really appreciate her also on TikTok. So check her out. As coronavirus surges on, I have noticed that it's the end of think pieces. We had been having all these think pieces about how since we're all home and working together to get through coronavirus, that life is going to be different. Like we're going to be more care centered work will look different, et cetera, et cetera. And well, those accommodations that I was wondering whether they would be rolled back, they're being rolled back. People are eager to go back to life as it was. And so they have. And illness surges, death surge. People are forced to go back to work, even if it's not safe or necessary. Teachers are writing wills and letters to their students in the case of their untimely deaths. This is not normal. This is not normal. I want to keep saying this because I think that we've forgotten. It's only been five months and this has become normal. This amount of death is not normal. This amount of suffering is not normal. And us chronically ill folks are sitting here like, oh, okay, people really do actually expect us to die so that they can continue to uphold capitalism. Cool. That sounds like a worthy feat. At the end of the day, the people who are listening to this podcast are mostly the choir. If you're listening to this, I know it's either because you are chronically ill or you love someone who is chronically ill. And maybe that's me. Hi, friends. Or maybe that's someone else. But I wish more just in general allies would go out of their way to hear our narratives. And that's not really happening. The 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act just passed on July 26th. 
Under the ADA, workplace accommodations must be made unless an employer can prove that those accommodations would create undue hardship for the employer. Hmm. In the choice between properly accommodating folks with disabilities, both visible and invisible, and proving that accommodations would create undue hardships for them, which do you think employers are most likely to do? I'll wait. If you guess that they are more likely to state undue hardship, then you would be correct. During coronavirus, it feels like workplaces are cracking down even more on disabled and ill folks, leaving us behind, and ultimately, yes, leaving many of us to die. The expansion of the unemployment package is helping to keep people alive, as are the eviction moratoriums, to some extent. But since the ADA anniversary the other day, I've been thinking a lot about why our treatment during coronavirus makes me feel so deeply sad. One, it's isolating and lonely. Two, it's dangerous. And three, it offers proof that we are seen as expendable. And this makes me so sad because there are as many ways to be and ways to live as there are people in the world. Chronically ill and disabled folks offer models of care that are transgressive in a capitalist society because they're based on mutual aid, on supporting each other through the navigation of systems that were not built to support us, that are slow and meaningful and well-paced, that rely on rest, that let people offer their strengths to the world instead of everyone being expected to do and be all things. When our workplaces and our local governments and our local businesses and so on would rather foist us out than accommodate us, they are missing out on our beautiful and creative humanness. And that's a damn shame. And I talked about this in my last episode, but the data continues to come out and prove me right. So I'm going to talk about it again. I live with myalgic encephalomyelitis, formerly known as chronic fatigue syndrome. It is a post-viral illness, and many people with COVID, even with mild cases, are suffering from long-term effects. They're calling themselves long haulers. They're being diagnosed with CFS. I don't want to get COVID. I mean, I may have already had it, but I wouldn't want to get it again or get it if I didn't have it or whatever, in part because I don't know how much my hypervigilant immune system would be affected as someone who lives with post-viral illness already. My ME is comparatively mild to other people's cases at this point. I'm not trying to regress to 2012 Allison or worse. I like being able to get out of bed because I haven't always been able to do that. And I bet that you do too if you are currently able to. Let's keep it that way. Stay home as much as you can. Stay safe as best you can. Stay masked. As the pandemic stretches on before us, it may be too late to contain it, but it's not too late to raise your voice. Even if the death toll moving forward is lower, we should be acting as if our goal is to save every single life. BIPOC people, disabled people, chronically ill people, elderly people should not have to die for you. Thank you for listening. This has been The Illness Chronicles. It's been really fun talking to you and pretending that you're here with me. I feel you in solidarity. Follow me on Instagram at The Illness Chronicles, on Twitter at The Illness Chronicles. If you have young children, please follow me at Allie Tells Stories on Instagram and YouTube. It's been a blast. Thank you so much for listening. 
and please share this with everyone who you think needs to hear it. I love you. And please like me on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, five stars, comment a review. It helps this podcast be seen. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. Goodbye.